Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer, and I love all things tech. And this is our fourth episode about DARPA. And after this episode, I will switch to some other topics for a while. But DARPA's history is incredibly complicated, and it's intertwined with some of the most important technologies we interact with today. So we will revisit this topic in the future. We'll come back and continue the story of DARPA. But I did not want to turn tech stuff into DARPA stuff. So after this one, I figure we'll move on to something else, and maybe in a few weeks we'll pick up where we left off today. In our last episode, we covered a lot more of the technology that was developed as part of the efforts in the Vietnam War. And I guess now it's a good time to remind everyone that DARPA, which back in the 60s was known by its original name ARPA, was not an R&D facility itself, not truly. It was more of an agency that would award contracts to other organizations, such as think tanks, universities, defense contractors, and stuff like that. ARPA slash DARPA would fund the work, and they would also set the expectations, the guidelines, you know, what it was that they were hoping to get out of it. But the actual science and development was going on throughout the United States at all these different facilities. And these projects were frequently top, top, top secret, meaning the people who worked on them would keep it quiet even from their coworkers. So only people at the top of DARPA really tended to know all about the bits and pieces. And sometimes even the director wasn't fully aware of everything that was going on. That's how classified some of these projects were. In 1969... While several ARPA research projects were all tied up in the Vietnam War, a group of computer networking specialists would initiate the original ARPANET connections. ARPANET was the R&D project to create a means for different computers to send data back and forth between each other, even if those computers relied upon different computer languages and even if they were separated by many, many miles from one another. Part of this required the design and production of a brand new technology, a router. ARPA had contracted the company BBN Technologies to build the first routers back in 1968. It took a year, but on October 29, 1969, computers at the Stanford Research Institute, at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and at the University of Utah would connect through these routers. The first message sent across this three-node network was low, L-O. This was actually Christopher Klein's attempt to log in, L-O-G-I-N, to the SRI computer remotely. But the SRI computer crashed in mid-message, and so low is all we got. Also, how typical is it that a server goes down just when you have something important to send to it? It dates all the way back to the beginning of the ARPANET. But more seriously, this connection showed that remote computers would be able to send data back and forth using network communication standards and also relying upon technologies like packet switching. That involves dividing data, such as the data that represents a file, into smaller packets. And each packet has information about where the data is from, where it's going, and how it fits into the overall collection of information so that you can, um, when I say you, so that a computer can reconstruct the file. These ideas would get fleshed out over the next several years. An important moment would happen in 1974 when Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn would publish 
a protocol for packet network interconnection, which laid out the principles behind TCP. But I've done full episodes about ARPANET, so for this episode, we'll just remind you that that was something that was happening at this time. And we'll also point out some of the big moments as they tie back into ARPA. So the main purpose of ARPANET, by the way, that was just to create those methodologies for computer networks. But one of the applications, perhaps one of the benefits that ARPA was really interested in was the idea that by creating distributed networks of computers, the U.S. could maintain some communications and command structures in the event of a nuclear strike. So it's kind of scary, but it's also really interesting when you think of it from a communication standpoint. If you have a concentrated computer center, let's say that you've got a known defense computer at a university, well, that is a potential target. If your adversary knows that there's a computer at that location and they know that it's of... Uh, critical importance, they may target it. And if they take it down, then you lose it. And that is another problem for you to have to handle. But if you create a means for computers to work together across a big network and it spreads all over the country, you have distributed your computing power significantly. And even if a strike were to take down part of that network, because of the nature of the network itself, the rest of it may continue to operate Uh, without the section that has been taken out, which means you still have some of your communications and control systems in place. So it was looked at as a defense measure as well, not just a means of having computers be able to communicate with one another, but it was an, an added benefit. Also in 1969, ARPA and the U.S. Army worked with Bell Labs and the Williams Research Corporation to develop the WR-19 turbofan engine, This engine acts as the power plant for many different cruise missiles. And I actually had to look this up because I was not familiar with the term power plant when it comes to things like missiles and jets and airplanes. I think of power plant as a place that is used to generate electricity. But power plant in this context is an apparatus that provides power for a device. It's not a big surprise. And so the power in this particular uh, scenario is the power to fly through the air. So... Not that mysterious. It just threw me for a loop the first time I saw it because despite the fact that I've been doing this for 10 years and that I'm 43 years old, I don't think I'd ever actually encountered that phrasing before. Meanwhile, uh, while this turbofan is in development, while ARPANET is coming online, ARPA was also funding advancements in underwater propulsion systems. So not just this turbofan for going through the air, They were also looking at underwater systems. The U.S. Navy had already funded work out of the Applied Research Laboratory at Penn State for a system that was called the Stored Chemical Energy Propulsion System, or SCEPS, S-C-E-P-S. This was used to power torpedoes. ARPA would fund subsequent research to increase the operation duration for those systems, to have them be long-endurance systems, in other words. And these were systems that were relying upon thermal chemical reactions. So you would have them burn through what was essentially fuel, so you had to come up with new ways to replenish that. The result of this was an improvement over the old technology, and it would be incorporated in the design of the MK-50 torpedo. In 1970, anti-war sentiment was on the rise in the United States. The Vietnam War conflict had been dragging on for quite some time, and 
the news was just devastating out of Vietnam. For one thing, the Vietnam War was one of the first uh, real conflicts where reporters on the ground were able to, to send back footage and real stories of what was going on, and it was not, these were not positive stories. One place where this anti-war sentiment really became apparent was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. There, an enormous computer, the fastest in the world at that time, was the bullseye of this target. The computer was called the ILLIAC-4, I-L-L-I-A-C-4. Professor Daniel L. Slotnick, who had called John von Neumann a mentor, he had studied under von Neumann, was the ARBA scientist in charge of the ILLIAC-4 project. And his goal was to get the ILLIAC-4 up to being able to process a billion instructions per second. It was running calculations related to ballistic missiles, as well as the possibility of using weather modification for defense. Top secret stuff, in other words, because it was a Department of Defense computer running at this university. And in early 1970, a student reporter was able to attend a meeting where they talked about how this computer's time was being allocated. And in that story that the student reporter published, the uh, reporter revealed that one of the things the computer was being used to do was related to nuclear weapons. Slotnick was caught between anti-war protesters and the Department of Defense. He managed to anger both sides at the same time when he said he took on this project in order to be able to build the computer. He wanted to have this computer capable of running a billion operations per second. And in order to do that, he was going to need millions of dollars. And the Department of Defense offered that opportunity. He said that if the Red Cross had done the same, he would have taken the money from the Red Cross and had nothing to do with the Department of Defense. This had the benefit of ticking off both the anti-war protesters and the Department of Defense. Nobody was happy about this. Tensions continued to grow, and there were more than a few violent incidents on and around the University of Illinois campus in the months following this news report. So in June of that year, the university reported to ARPA that the university was no longer going to be able to keep this computer safe. The ILLIAC-4 was in danger if it stayed on campus. And so ARPA chose to move the computer, which, by the way, was huge. I mean, it was several feet long, several feet wide. It weighed an enormous amount. So moving it was not a uh, an easy option. In fact, just to plug in the power supply, you would have to have a forklift. So this was not an easy thing to move, but they did relocate it. They moved it all the way out to California to NASA's Institute for Advanced Computation at the Ames Research Center. Now, following this, while you have this anti-war sentiment growing, you have these, these violent protests happening, Senator Mike Mansfield would introduce a bill that would limit ARPA's projects to those that had a, quote, specific military function, end quote. ARPA would end up having trouble getting budget for speculative or bleeding-edge research. They were mostly trying to look into ways of pushing the 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 bleeding edge of technology out much further than anyone else. In fact, the whole goal of ARPA, or DARPA as it would later be known, was to make certain that the United States would never be left behind again, that another Sputnik-type event would never happen to the U.S., that the U.S. would always be on the forefront of that technology, which would mean having to do a lot of exploratory research and uh, development 
that you could not easily tie into active military efforts because you're looking ahead to anticipate problems that you don't have yet, but you think are around the corner. So this was a real blow to the agency. In addition, the Secretary of Defense would order ARPA to be removed from the Pentagon, so the agency's new office would be almost three miles away in Arlington, Virginia. And that would mean that you would no longer have that very quick, immediate access to Pentagon officials. You weren't working side by side with them anymore. No one at ARPA, not even the director, was really sure if the agency was going to be around much longer or not. There was a serious worry that the agency might just fizzle out without a formal conclusion. But the agency wasn't officially shut down, and so it would continue to fund R&D work in various projects. I'll explain a little bit more in just a second, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. ARPA was also funding work to develop low-weight mirrors made out of beryllium for use in stuff like infrared telescopes and ballistic missile defense systems and weapons guidance systems. It ended up being useful for lots of stuff, especially in space. I mean, anytime, and I'll, I'll mention this again toward the end of this episode, anytime you can reduce the amount of weight of the components you're sending up into space, you'll want to do it because weight essentially equates money. The heavier your payload is to get into space, the more expensive it's going to be to get up there. So this was an important development, not just for these military guidance systems and defense systems, but for space-faring stuff overall. ARPA also funded development of technologies that would be incorporated into a new generation of detection equipment that could pick up Soviet submarine movements. Uh, The project was considered one of the agency's biggest successes, with the resulting technology being deployed in the early 1980s. So again, you see how far ahead the agency is from the production of technology, you know, several years out from where they're doing the research and development. They do the R&D work in the early 70s. It's not really ready to be rolled out uh, in an application until the 1980s. But that was, again, ARPA's argument. They said, we are necessary to be able to to work on these problems and anticipate these things so that we're ready to go within a decade or so. But if we're not doing that, if we're being reactionary instead of proactive, we're going to be behind the game. John Lehman, who was Secretary of the Navy in 1985, would end up saying that because of these submarine sensors, if a war were to ever break out between the United States and the Soviet Union, those sensors would give him the capability to attack all Soviet subs that were in deployment within the first five minutes of that war. So it was considered to be an incredibly successful technology. It's also indicative of a lot of DARPA's early work, which focused largely on developing sensor technology for all sorts of stuff, seismic sensors, acoustic sensors, uh, radioactive isotope sensors, etc. So there's also no getting around the fact that most of the technologies I've talked about in these episodes are meant either to defend against or attack or to make attacks more effective. They're all supposed to be related to military stuff, after all. But this next bit is sort 
of a relief from that. In the early 1970s, ARPA funded research into what was called glassy carbon. This was a foamy sort of stuff made from pure carbon. And the foam had some really interesting features. It was strong. It didn't weigh very much. It was chemically inert. And while the original idea was that the stuff might be really important for numerous electrochemical applications, one unexpected benefit was that it became a strong candidate for material to use in surgical implants, like heart valves. And so it was. And so this particular ARPA project would fund work on a technology that would go on to save countless lives. And I think that's pretty cool. It's also a good reminder that while some of this technology was initially intended specifically for a military purpose or to potentially go into military applications, they often would have much wider applications than just military ones. In 1972, ARPA's materials research projects developed rare earth permanent magnets capable of operating, that is, you know, maintaining their magnetism across a range of temperatures that had been identified as being militarily relevant. And it's a pretty big range. So on the low end is minus 55 degrees Celsius or minus 67 Fahrenheit. On the hot end of the scale, it's 125 degrees Celsius, which is 257 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, typically, heating a magnet will reduce its strength of its magnetic field, and cooling a magnet down will increase a permanent magnet's magnetic field. So why is that? Well, from a very basic level, a magnet's molecules are largely aligned with one another. They're more or less all pointing in the same direction within the material. So you've got all these molecules that are lined up in parallel, and their north poles are all pointing in one direction, their south poles are all pointing in the other direction. Heating a magnet up causes molecules to move around. Heating stuff up causes molecular movement. And the more the molecules move around, the more that alignment is compromised. So if you heat up a magnet a bit, it starts to lose its magnetic properties. If you heat it up enough to a point that's called the Curie point, named after uh, Madame Curie, they will no longer be magnetic at all. You will have demagnetized your magnet by heating it up to this point. It's where the molecules will be out of alignment and they will not realign. To do that, though, you'd have to heat the material up pretty darn hot. The Curie point is typically very, very, very hot for most materials. So, for example, iron, that Curie point is like 770 degrees Celsius. That's 1,417 degrees Fahrenheit. So this would mean that it'd be very rare that you would ever encounter those kind of situations. The only way you would do it is if you were doing it on purpose, typically. This work was really to make sure that the magnets were going to operate according to expectations under hot and cold conditions. Also in 1972, ARPA officially became DARPA, or the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And it would stick with that name until 1993, In 93, it would drop the D and become ARPA again for three years. And then in 1996, it would become DARPA again. But I figure we're going to have a while before we get to the 90s, so we'll talk about that when we get there. Another DARPA-funded innovation in the early 1970s was the development of gallium arsenide as a semiconductor material. So before the semiconductor, electronics relied on these really large component parts like vacuum tubes which meant your basic computer would take up an enormous amount of space. 
Several researchers developed semiconductor technologies all the way through the 1940s, but it would take a while for the semiconductor transistor to become practical. The properties of gallium arsenide allowed it to host faster transistors running on more power than you could put on a silicon transistor. This technology would find its way into all sorts of applications, though the military was mostly concerned with its use on GPS kits and precision-guided munitions and other defense systems. One last bit about the Vietnam War and DARPA, because we're getting to the point where America was getting ready to withdraw from Vietnam. The war became increasingly unpopular as it stretched on, and for one thing in the U.S., it was never really a formal war. The U.S. had started out trying to supply aid in the form of technology and training to the South Vietnamese government and military, and this was all in an effort to stop the growth of communism without getting directly involved. That was the goal, was to make sure that the South Vietnamese forces were capable of handling this without the U.S. having to get directly involved. But obviously, that did not pan out. Every year since 1959 had seen an increase in the number of U.S. troops sent to the region. In 1971, a former RAND Corporation analyst named Daniel Ellsberg would leak a collection of documents that collectively were called the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. Those documents contained information about the U.S.'s secret involvement with Vietnam for more than a decade. This was actually a detailed report that McNamara had asked the RAND Corporation to put together as it was going on, sort of an encyclopedia of the Vietnam War. And uh, the problem was that at this point, this analyst leaked the whole thing to the New York Times. And it included details on the various ARPA projects that had happened in that time and the involvement of the super elitist group of scientists called the Jasons. And the growing anti-war movement was really gaining momentum in the United States. And many people were outraged, not just about the war, but also about these revelations of how the U.S. public had been deceived over the years, how the government had been purposefully misleading the U.S. population that is, you know, at least supposed to be represented by this government. And so it bred this this distrust in the government, saying, you have been doing all this secret stuff, telling us it's one thing when it's really another. The anti-war sentiment put a lot of pressure on all parties involved. Eventually, it led to ARPA's director, who was uh, Dr. Steve J. Lukasik, uh, the seventh director of ARPA at that point, to sever the ties with the Jasons. ARPA was seen as the R&D tip on the point of the military-industrial complex spear. And since the efforts in Vietnam didn't prevent the North Vietnamese forces from taking Saigon, many were beginning to question the usefulness of such an agency in the first place. The experience of Vietnam had an enormous effect on the American psyche. The majority of Americans felt the war was unethical and a political mistake, and that it led to the deaths of thousands of Americans, not to mention millions of others. And it taught Americans that the use of force and superior technology would not necessarily win out over philosophies and ideology. It wasn't realistic to say, because we are technologically superior, we're definitely going to win. Now, all of this is to say that it would make the post-Vietnam War era for DARPA really challenging. Apart from the name change, which was, again, to indicate that from this point forward, the agency was only going to pursue projects that met a specific military need, 
all projects related to the Vietnam War were to stop. Project Agile was called an enormous failure, that all the attempts to bring research and technology to stop insurgents had been ineffective at best and counterproductive at worst. Several previous ARPA directors who oversaw Project Agile throughout the years would admit that their efforts were misguided and ineffective. DARPA established a new office called Tactical Technology. This office carried out much of the top-secret R&D work around sensors, improving the technologies that had been part of the failed electric fence project, as well as more successful projects like Vela and the submarine sensors. And then there was the move to research technologies that can mask aircraft from radar systems. New advanced air defense missile systems were making it increasingly dangerous to fly missions in combat theaters. DARPA would tackle this problem by funding research into ways that an aircraft might foil radar systems, either by absorbing radar waves so that nothing bounces back, or by reflecting radar waves off into other directions so that they don't return to their radar stations, or both. These projects would evolve into Have Blue, the first practical stealth combat aircraft. This was a proof-of-concept vehicle that had its first test flight in 1977. And there's an interesting behind-the-scenes story that really shows how secretive all this stuff was. So the CIA had previously been working with Lockheed to develop stealth technology. That would culminate with an aircraft called the A-12 Oxcart plane. I talked about it in an episode about stealth aircraft. But the A-12 was so top secret that even the director of DARPA, who was uh, George Heilmeyer at this time, he hadn't even heard about it. So when DARPA began to look for possible contractors to work on stealth technology, they did not initially consider Lockheed. They weren't they didn't know that Lockheed had been working on this stuff. They re- originally only reached out to McDonnell Douglas and to Northrop. When Lockheed executives found out, they petitioned the CIA to let them tell DARPA about the stealth technology that the super-secret Skunk Works division had been doing in order to bid on this contract. The CIA would allow Lockheed to tell Heilmeyer about the A-12, which later would evolve into the SR-71 reconnaissance aircraft for the Air Force, and Lockheed would win this contract. I'll have more to say about stealth technology and some of the other tech that DARPA worked on toward the end of the 70s in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. The original design for what would become Have Blue would later evolve into the F-117 stealth fighter. Uh, the original design was nicknamed the Hopeless Diamond. The sketch was of an aircraft that vaguely resembled the Hope Diamond and had lots of facets and odd angles. No one was really sure if it would be able to fly. The weird angles were part of the stealth technology. It was all an effort to redirect those incoming radar signals so that they would not return to the listening stations. They would bounce off into some other directions, kind of like using a mirror to direct a ray of light. And you just uh, tilt the mirror a different direction and the light goes a different way. By redirecting the radar signals, it would seem to the radar station that there was nothing in that region of the sky. That was the whole idea. Much of the work on the stealth technology took place on the most famous secret base of all time, which of course is Area 51, or the Groom Lake facility. 
I've talked about this base numerous times in this podcast as well. The Air Force would take over the program in the late 1970s and conduct flight tests all over the Tonopah Test Range, which was 70 miles northwest of Area 51. Some people would just call that Area 52. And another big project was in updating the old transit navigation system. It was a satellite-based navigation system that uh, ARPA had been involved with uh, in the uh, early 60s. This effort was to replace that with a more robust satellite system. In 1973, as America was withdrawing from Vietnam, the Pentagon ordered a joint program for a single navigation system that all the branches of the military would be able to use. Because at this point, these various military branches had all been working on their own systems, which were not compatible with one another. And eventually, uh, the government said, this doesn't make sense. We should have a more unified approach. So this new program was called NAVSTAR, and DARPA helped fund the development of this program, which by 1989 was finally ready for full deployment, and it consisted of 24 satellites with atomic clocks, which was necessary for synchronization, and they were launched into orbit to give global navigation coverage. This information could be used not just to navigate people around the world, but also for guided weapons systems. As part of the technology, designers included what they called an offset feature. It was, it was known as selective availability. And it meant that if you didn't have the right kind of receiver to descramble this information and get a readout, you would actually get a result that would be off by several hundred feet, which would limit the chances of someone unauthorized making use of the system, and it would also keep the GPS network impractical for commercial use. That is, until President Bill Clinton would end the era of selective availability and allow civilian systems to access information with essentially the same precision as military systems. And at that point, GPS receivers were accurate enough to be used for things like navigation in cars. Because before, you would be you know, you would have like a, a precision of down to around a few hundred feet. That's not very useful when you're trying to look for a turn. Anyway, during Vietnam, DARPA had funded a few drone programs as well. These were very primitive drones compared to what we have today, but it was the beginning of serious work in unmanned aerial vehicles for reconnaissance and for weaponization. They were codenamed Prairie and Calare. Both were remotely piloted vehicles, or RPVs, and both used lawnmower motors and could carry a payload of about 28 pounds or 12.7 kilograms. These would serve as prototypes for work in the field, which DARPA would end up handing over to the armed forces in 1977. DARPA would fund another project for a, an un unmanned aerial vehicle called AMBER that was supposed to be a long-endurance UAV that would get support from the Navy as the project was proving promising. But in the late 1980s, Congress would create a new joint program office to continue research and development for unmanned aerial vehicles, and DARPA was effectively removed from that process. DARPA would move on to pursue a new project called Assault Breaker, which had the goal of bringing together many different disparate technologies in an effort to make them work together in a system of systems. This idea of, we have all these pieces out there and they're all effective, but it would be better if we could actually make a cohesive approach to this. So the goal was to create a means in which military commanders 
would have an enormous amount of information at their disposal and the capability of launching an attack on a target, even if that target were well behind enemy lines. This would require bringing together all of these different technologies that DARPA had played a part in making a reality. Soviet Union spies learned about this program, Assault Breaker, and they reported back to their superiors in Moscow. And as eventually, military personnel in the Soviet Union wrote up a report and published it in a journal called Military Thought. It's actually a classified journal. Only a few high-ranking officials really had access to it. Well, high-ranking Soviet officials and a few U.S. spies, because as we know, everyone is spying on everyone else all the time, always. So when U.S. officials learned that the Soviet government was worried that the U.S. was building up a program that would give America this incredible advantage in both gathering intelligence and acting upon it, spirits started to run high in the U.S. Because if your enemy is scared, that's good news for you, I guess. One cool project that started independently from DARPA was one that would eventually be called SimNet. So there was an Air Force pilot named Jack Thorpe, who was thinking about the possibility of networked flight simulators for the purposes of training uh, pilots, you know, combat training, without actually having to go up in a real jet. And he had experienced this on a small scale. This was not something he just came up with on his own. He had already had sort of this experience in a system that was at the Flying Training Division of Williams Air Force Base. And that system would allow two pilots to simulate flying a mission together. The simulator was complete with a hydraulic motion system, so it'd move you as you're piloting this simulated aircraft. But again, it was just a pair of these simulators that worked together. Thorpe wondered if perhaps it would be possible to build out a much larger system with multiple uh, simulators all connected to each other to allow for more complex training. Thorpe wrote up a paper titled Future Views Aircrew Training 1980 through 2000. This was in 1978 when he wrote this, and he pitched his ideas to top brass, but they didn't take it very seriously. To be fair to them, the tech that Thorpe was proposing was incredibly sophisticated for the time, and also not many people really knew that much about the progress that ARPANET had been making in networking different computer systems together, so no one was really sure how feasible this was. Thorpe would go on doing his career, and then he would go to the Naval War College to further his education. And after getting out of that, he was assigned, sort of on loan by the Air Force, to DARPA. While he was at DARPA, his boss asked him, hey, you got any interesting ideas, you know, beyond what you're working on? So Thorpe shared his vision of these networked simulators. And his boss loved this idea and told Thorpe that you should tell this to Larry Lynn, who was then the director of DARPA. Larry Lynn liked it a lot, too. And so he asked Thorpe, how much money do you think it would cost to do this project? And Thorpe said, $17 million. And Lynn said, okie dokie. So the program began. And it became known as Simulator Networking, or SimNet. DARPA would contract with Delta Graphics Incorporated, Perceptronics Incorporated, and BBN Incorporated to help build out the system. And they would subcontract with other companies to build all these simulators. And they weren't just aircraft simulators. They built tank simulators and other stuff too. And they networked them all together. The advantages of these simulators over real-world training were numerous. 
real-world combat training is obviously very dangerous. For some scenarios, such as let's say you want to operate your aircraft, but you also want to jam the sensors on that aircraft, not only is that very dangerous because you're taking away some of the information that the pilots are relying upon, it's also potentially problematic because depending on where you're flying these these training missions, using that jamming technology can affect other stuff like commercial flights or maybe the the uh, airspace of allies or maybe people who aren't your allies. It can be really, really touchy. But if you simulate it, you can do pretty much any scenario that the computer is capable of running. So also because the systems were networked, in theory, you could have people in different parts of the world all training together. You didn't have to get them all in the same place at the same time. Though you would have to figure out something about lag and latency for these systems. SimNet, in a way, was a precursor to online games that millions of gamers play these days, like MMORPGs. They can kind of trace, uh, well, not necessarily trace their history back, but SimNet was definitely a precursor to that kind of stuff. There are many more technologies that DARPA helped fund in the 1970s. There were Exomer lasers. These were used in communications platforms between aircraft and submerged submarines. They needed to develop special lasers in the shortwave range of lasers. The longer wavelengths didn't have good penetration in the water, so you couldn't really use them to communicate with a submarine. But there was this need to communicate with submarines because at that point, really the only way a submarine could communicate with the surface is if the submarine itself surfaced. And obviously that puts the submarine in a vulnerable position. Being able to use these shortwave lasers and have them penetrate the water, reach the submarine, and have the submarine be able to respond opened up communication in ways that weren't possible before. DARPA also contributed some of the components for the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, The agency would design and help uh, build two antenna booms for the satellite telescope in the late 1970s and early 1980s. DARPA pioneered the development of a special graphite and aluminum material that would allow the booms to not just conduct radio frequencies, but also double as structural supports. So these structural supports, it made, made the overall telescope lighter. The material was lighter. It removed some of the need for some extra infrastructure. And again, if you make your payload lighter to send off into space, you bring the price down. So weight is money. So it was a cost-saving feature. It took the better part of a decade for DARPA to recover in the wake of the Vietnam War. The agency changed a lot in the 1970s. And we're going to leave off for now. We're going to say goodbye to DARPA for the time being, but I will come back to revisit the agency and the projects it funded over the following decades in future episodes. So we'll talk about things like Star Wars and autonomous cars and spying on World of Warcraft players and more, because DARPA played a role in all of that kind of stuff. It's a fascinating story. And again, uh, because of the work that DARPA has helped fund we have access to some pretty incredible technologies that, you know, rolled out a few years later based on that early work. So it's definitely benefited us in many, many ways. The agency has also created stuff that's been at best controversial and at worst incredibly, incredibly harmful. Like Agent Orange is the one that point to easily as being a truly terrible thing. 
So uh, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have DARPA, I guess. We will revisit this in the future. But in the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for topics you would like me to cover on tech stuff, some sort of technology, a company, a person in tech, whatever it may be, go to techstuffpodcast.com. You can find uh, all the ways to contact us there. I look forward to hearing from you. Make sure you check out our merchandise store over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. Don't forget we are nominated in the iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. So make sure you support Tech Stuff there. I would love to be able to accept an award. I'm, I'm going to be at the awards ceremony. So make sure that uh, the speech I write is one that I get to give people. Also, just go check out the awards. See if there are shows nominated that you really love. It's always nice to give some support to the creators who make the stuff you really enjoy, whether it's tech stuff or something else. I, I joke a lot about supporting tech stuff, but honestly, I think you should support whichever shows you feel deserve it the most. And if it's my show, I am very thankful for that. But if it's not, no sweat. I think that uh, good work deserves recognition. So go check that out. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 